Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, and today I'm speaking with Kimberly K. Wong, author of the book Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets. Kimberly, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me today. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, Well, I am a sociology professor at the University of Chicago, and I direct the Global Studies program. And I am a new mom. I have a daughter that's two years old. Congratulations. Thank you. It must be an exciting time. It really is. I I was wondering if you could tell us what led you to write a book about spiderweb capitalism and maybe explain a bit what you mean by spiderweb capitalism. You know, that's a really great question. Um, I started the book, I mean, I guess all books have different kinds of starts and stops. And um, I started the book actually with a much simpler question. I really wanted to try to understand how foreign investors navigate frontier and emerging markets where there is no clear rule of law or where the laws are open to interpretation and where they're constrained by different laws that govern their activities. So for example, how do Western investors navigate markets like Vietnam and Myanmar when they're constrained by something like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act um, in relation to investors from China or other parts of Southeast Asia who don't have to adhere to these same laws? And when I got to Vietnam and Myanmar to study this smaller question, this world of offshoring opened up to me, and I realized that frontier and emerging markets are in fact interconnected and interwoven to the financial markets and and market activity in some of the most developed economies around the world. And so spiderweb capitalism is really a story of offshoring, and it's a story of how offshore vehicles uh, help to enable those from developed economies to make investments in global and frontier uh, emerging markets without worrying about the same kind of reputational or legal risks involved with entering these risky markets. Um, I guess a short summary is that spiderweb capitalism is a story about a complex web of subsidiaries or paper companies that are connected across multiple sovereigns or countries. And in my view, they're virtually impossible to both quantify and at times identify. Um, And I think that economists have done a really important work in sort of starting to open up the world of offshoring by illustrating these really complex networks in light of the Pandora Papers, the Panama Papers. Um, And and also by looking at um, sort of doing creative, uh, engaging in creative ways of trying to account for flows of capital onshore um, versus offshore. I think of Gabriel Zuckman's work as a really good example of this, a hidden wealth of nations. But where a sociologist comes in is to really show that people are really important for market activity. In fact, the story that I tell is that people make markets and people are embedded in a complex web of financial um, institutions and intermediaries um, that are all interconnected, that shape 
not only the movement of money around the world, but also um, that are responsible for making markets. And so I think I'm, the, the book is really about is really more about how people make markets than than just about how people behave in markets that already exist. That, that's one of the things I fa- thought was so fascinating about your book, which is that I'm reading it and what you're uh, what you described there is at first glance, it sounds like, okay, this is going to be a book of, of, of financial journalism, or this is going to be a book about economics. And yet, as you explain, the approach that you take is one that they don't, they, they, they think of it in terms of, okay, we're going to study this market as an entity, or we're going to study this process, or we're going to report on what's happening. And yet your book is a very human approach. And, and that's one of the things that made it such fascinating reading was you, how this process, and it was, and I was especially struck by the amount of investment that you put into the book, the amount of time you spent actually visiting these places and 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 witnessing this process for yourself over a period of years in these markets. Yes, I um, really dug my heels in, and <laughs> like this was probably the most ambitious project I could have ever imagined doing. Um, I'm very fortunate to be at a place like the University of Chicago where there are resources um, that helped me, you know, helped backstop a lot of the, the, the research because it was costly. And also um, there were a number of external institutions like Fulbright and the Social Science Research Council and ACLS that helped to fund this. But I think what you're getting at is that for this book, um, I wasn't interested in taking a journalistic approach where I was like wanting to write a story about one person or do an expose on one financial firm or one company. What I was really interested in was to sort of trace these broader patterns and practices. And so I interviewed over 300 people and those people include ultra high net worth individuals who I call the big spiders in the spider web. And then I, art- I sort of articulate a way in which these spiders are social by nature. And so they hire or they employ smaller spiders. And those are people that are highly compensated financial professionals or high net worth individuals who help to build out various parts of those webs. Those are lawyers, accountants, fund managers, asset managers, C- C-suite executives, company secretaries, a whole group of financial intermediaries like bankers and fixers who help to build various parts of the web on behalf of the ultra high net worth individuals. And to do that, I sort of start in Vietnam and Myanmar, and then from there go to Hong Kong and Singapore, because that it turns out that the onshore investments in Vietnam and Myanmar are actually subsidiaries or, or um, owned, um, or they're sort of, yeah, they're subsidiaries of special purpose vehicles and holding companies that sit in Hong Kong and Singapore. But then once I got to Hong Kong and Singapore and I started interviewing lawyers and bankers and company secretaries there, I realized that those entities were just sort of subsidiaries or paper companies of broader entities held in the British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, Panama, Seychelles, you know, Samoa, etc. And to do this, what I ended up doing was interviewing people sort of from the ground up like and trying to follow and trace the money. And I followed people, I traveled over 350,000 miles in the span of, I would say, um, 18 months. And I also did follow-up interviews in between over the winters and summers in between teaching to sort of um, 
get a sense of what how people who are making these markets experience this. And what I mean by that, I was as I was really interested in looking at how they raise money to make investments in frontier markets where there's not a ton of data, where it's largely an emotional or a relationship-based market, but also how they source deals in those new frontiers to make those investments. And so it was sort of a two-prong approach um, in really wanting to connect the various uh, nodes in a network. Now, at first glance, this might sound like what you're doing is you're describing, you know, perhaps potentially illegal activity or, or activity that is clearly designed to uh, avoid certain uh, requirements, certain laws. And, and there's a bit of that. But what you do, are focusing on in your book is, is what you call, and I, I absolutely love the phrase, playing in the gray. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit about what, you know, what you mean by the gray here and and how it is and, and why it is that they're functioning in an environment like this. Yeah, that's so, you know, initially the title of the book was Playing in the Gray. And part of the reason why that is the case is because that's something that really emerged um, from the ground up and from the interviews. I was not thinking about playing in the gray at all. But it, it just came up in interview after interview that I did of people describing how in order to be successful in these kinds of frontier economies, they have to be adept and or hone their craft at playing in the gray. And what I would when I would ask people, OK, so explain to me, what do you mean by playing in the gray? They would describe how it's really about finessing this boundary between what's legal and illegal activity. And what that means often is that they're front running the market and the law. So, for example, there might be um, activities like that they are that they that financial activities or investment practices that they um, engage in that are illegal in one market but legal in another. So, for example, at one point in the United States, for example, those kinds of practices were not regulated. So, what do they do? They go to newer emerging markets and engage in those same kinds of practices. And then when the states sort of um, have the capacity to regulate those financial activities, they move to newer frontiers. And so it's really um, it's really about finessing the space between legal and illegal activity. And in fact, exploiting the boundary between first world and third world developed and undeveloped, because we have this imagination I think political scientists and economists and even sociologists, and I would even say geographers, have this imagination that we divide the world up into first world, third world, developed economies, less developed economies. Developed economies are characterized by clear rule of law, transparency, um, and less developed economies are um, operate by sort of uh, practices of crony capitalism or or sort of... um, um, yeah, crony capitalism, the sort of predatory states. And what I, what I found, which I found super fascinating in the process of doing the story, is that actually these markets, first world and third world economies or developmental states and um, crony capitalist states are in fact interwoven with one another. And it allows ultra high net worth individuals who are exploiting these frontiers to obfuscate their investments in these emerging markets um, by hiding in these very complicated webs. 
And so we have this imagination that they only hail from very developed economies, that they've made their money in these very legal ways, when in fact, these special purpose vehicles and holding companies obfuscate and hide um, their, their financial activities and investments in newer emerging markets where they're front running the market and law. And I think to be very clear, one of the reasons why people talked to me and were open was that they would say, look, nothing that I'm doing here is illegal. I'm, I'm following the law. This is the, sort of the way that it's set up. And what's interesting is as I've been presenting this book, um, there have been a number of people who've come to my academic talks who work in financial services. And the thing that they say in reaction is like, you know, this is the only way to do business. Like playing in the gray is how we all how we all operate and function it's systemic and that's also part of the story of the book that there's no in individual villain the way that you have in um, the 2008 financial crisis where you could point to wall street executives in this story there is no villain it's systemic it's a system and i think that that's what i'm really trying to get at in um in really thinking about and articulating back how they articulate playing in the gray. It's especially interesting, and this is where I think that the human picture uh, really uh, adds to what you describe about you, you get into how they feel about it and mm -hmm. how we might think, you know, based upon, you know, the popular image of, of, of capitalists and, 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 and high wealth earners that, you know, this is something that they prefer to do, but as you explain, it, it's, it's a trade-off. And, and sometimes while they're, they're happy to, you know, take the risk. And as you explain, many of them generally accept the fact that loss is possible, that when they're succeeding, they, they value a lot of those protections that come from transparency, that come from legality and, and how it's about, you know, finding that, 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 that golden mean, so to speak, where they can, you know, have the opportunity, but also enjoy a bit of security, which, as you explain, is is not, you know, guaranteed in, in a place like Myanmar. Yes, absolutely. I think that's what's most fascinating is that what I describe in the book is the way in which these um, investors take investments in emerging and frontier markets and sort of put them through this process of professionalizing. So the idea is to go into a a greenfield economy, a new frontier, and and setups, and you know where they're getting access to deals, in, access to inside deals, frankly for dirt cheap, and um, then they're set, setting up systems to help professionalize. So, uh, cross border legal structures, um, putting in a board, clearing up their accounting, trying to get some transparency around taxes and sort of tax liabilities. And in that process of professionalizing, they transition from accumulating wealth to now protecting wealth and using the very legal structures that are put in place in first world economies to protect the wealth that they've accumulated in developed and less developed or emerging markets or less developed economies. And so I think that that's really um key here in the ways in which these markets are interwoven, right? So yes, you go to these frontiers, you play in the gray, you make investments based on relationships and connections and a gut feeling about the dynamism of the market. But when you're successful and when you've accumulated wealth, then the, the, you transition to now protecting that wealth by hiring professional accountants, lawyers, um, you know, company secretaries to help put in place um, structures that help to protect that wealth. 
I'd like to talk a bit more about these deals because these were deals that you both described in the abstract, but you also described the process having witnessed it uh, firsthand and and not just in the sense of being a, a, a sort of a proverbial fly on the wall, but as someone who, you know, was, was you and you were undercover, you were identifying yourself as who you were, but you had a chance to witness this process of deal making. And it's one of the things that makes your book come alive is that how you uh, chronicle it by uh, I, you know you you have these people as uh, actors in the book and you describe the process and you you also through interviewing them capture their 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 thoughts their their ruminations about it. I was wondering if you explained how this deal process works by maybe describing a a uh, one of the deals that you detail in your book or maybe uh, perhaps uh, in in a bit more uh, abstractive way describe how how this process typically works. Uh, that's a really good question, and I think part of the story of spiderweb capitalism is it's like imagining a web that is um, constructed from different parts of the world that there's like you could imagine a smaller web um, built being built out in you know Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Myanmar by a small group of spiders and the goal is to connect that web to a bigger financial web in order to grow think about exit opportunities so. One example of this, and I so I, I guess it, you know the question is is like whether you look at the a deal from the bottom up or top down, and there's multiple ways of looking at it, which is why I like to think of this as sort of a 3D maze. If you look at it from the bottom up, from if you're standing in Vietnam or Myanmar, one of the primary responsibilities of asset managers there is to source deals, highly coveted deals are what are called sweetheart deals. Deals are not deals that are not available on the public market that are really about access to relationships. And that's is my, I mean, state-owned enterprises, um, you know, uh, local, um, you know, firms that have not yet opened themselves up to private capital from abroad, uh, for, private foreign capital um, in order to grow and expand. And so, there you have people sourcing deals and thinking about uh, potential lucrative opportunities. Uh, and those span all kinds of sectors. There are telecommunications, mining, um, you know, oil and gas, uh, ever, and, the, and, and now tech, cryptocurrencies, those have become very big, but also consumer goods. And, you know, um, it's you have this growing middle class and you have, you know, a lot of people who are growing middle class and a whole market that's opened up to them. So there, you're sort of sourcing deals. Then on the then you then you try to like raise capital to um, expand these markets, make investments in these markets, seek out opportunity these new frontiers. And so part of what I did there was follow people all around the world. I mean, I was in Newport Beach, I was in Vancouver, I was in Montreal, I was in New York City. Um, not traditional. I, I thought that I would be going to New York, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong. And I found that when they were sort of raising money, they were raising money from wealthy individuals almost everywhere, you know, Houston. And, and well, and there, what they do is they bring a deck and, um, you know, sort of show, give, give a pitch essentially to ultra high net worth individuals or the people who manage the money of ultra high net worth individuals and say, here's all of the opportunities you have. What is it that you're interested in investing in? And there's this kind of matchmaking process that's really about connecting smaller webs to bigger webs. And there, and what I think is 
important in the book that I detail in the book is that there's no way to think about this as one directional, right? Like it's not just big spiders exploiting smaller spiders. It's that smaller spiders also at times um, engage in very sort of creative and crafty ways to um, steal and um, from bigger spiders in the process of expanding their own webs. And so small webs can grow bigger. And, you know, they're there's lots of different ways of looking at it. And I think the book tries to shift the, the kaleidoscope to show um, how these webs are built from different perspectives. Another way of looking at it is um, in my book, in chapter one, I tell a story of this guy named Fritz. And Fritz is an asset manager um, or fund manager who basically um, manages the money of ultra high net worth individuals. And what I think is really interesting is like when I sit down with him, he describes himself as a small spider. And he was the one that really got me interested in thinking about differentiating between the ultra high net worth individuals and the high net worth individuals, because in my imagination, they were all one in the same. And so, you know, here's a guy who, um, you know, manages a fund that uh, has over, um, I think it was $200 million total in the fund, $250 million. So one person brings $200 million, that's the ultra high net worth individual, and $50 million comes from six subordinate spiders. So it's basically seven people um, together who bring who make up that $250 million. And essentially what he does from Hong Kong is that he sources deals and opportunities in Vietnam and Myanmar. So when somebody like Fritz goes to Vietnam and Myanmar, he's taking all of these meetings with different fund managers and asset managers based in Vietnam and Myanmar who have their fingertips on various deals um, or, or a portfolio of various investment opportunities there. And so, you know, I think that when I sat down and asked him, okay, well, you know, can you map out the network of your investments? And he, and many of them like Fritz, and then there's another guy named Will, who also I, I bring up in the book, will just say, look, I've totally lost track of like the number of offshore structures because there's so many, because for every single new investment, there's a new offshore structure that's set up. But generally there's a um, fund that's set up in the Cayman Islands and the, there, there's an investment manager. Um, and in that fund in the Cayman Islands, you have a group of limited partners who are usually um, New York based uh, legally. And the Cayman Fund has sort of an investment mandate to make investments in Russia, Africa, Ukraine, Southeast Asia. So Fritz only manages the Southeast Asia Fund and the Southeast Asia Fund makes investments for him in Vietnam and Myanmar. So he kind of sits in Hong Kong, uh, but it flies back and forth to Vietnam and Myanmar to source deals, but then also flies all around the world, just like I did, to try to raise more money for various deals that are uh, that are in Vietnam and Myanmar. I think that's the best way to articulate it. But the, but for each different individual that I studied, their view of this web shifts. Uh, I would say significantly because. What they do is their 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 practices and activities are really obfuscated from other people who are helping to build the very same web, um, different parts of the web that they're working that they're embedded in. 
it's interesting to see how those where those uh, separations take place. I, I was particularly drawn in, in your second chapter to when you're describing how these uh, people are introduced to opportunities. How your uh, your 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 high net wealth investors are or are, are, are very high net wealth investors are taking on these tours, and it was just so fascinating the way that you you know kind of took a step back and considered the context and what was uh, what was in, in a sense really happening in terms of how this was being done and, and how you know, they're being introduced to it how 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 the how the opportunities are presented to them and presented in a way to make them very attractive and then how when the deal itself is is structured and, and established that's where you see a lot of the smaller spiders stepping in and you know effectively weaving the web that the uh, that the very large spider decided that they want. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. And, you know, it's interesting because that second chapter, um, I sort of wrote later in part because after being in the field for a long time, it almost felt like taken for granted knowledge or everyone that I was around was like, yeah, that's common sense. That's how it's done. But I actually think it's a really important chapter for any kind of outsider to this world to seeing the very human side of the ways in which um, people come to get come together to build out this massive network. Um, and I also think that what I really try to capture there are the ways in which so much of these so so much in, uh, of these investments involve this kind of gut feeling. And um, this came up a number of times when I was doing interviews where people would say, you know, take your fancy and partly because I'm at Chicago, but it's like take your fancy Ivy League degrees and leave them at the door because in these markets, they don't do anything for you. You can't calculate risk. There's it's super messy. There's a big black box. How do you predict, you know, all of these unpredictable variables that how, how do you calculate and build algorithms or um, predictive models when there's so many unpredictable variables. And I think this chapter really tries to capture what that looks like and how it how these investments are really based off of a gut feeling. Um, and I also think that the human side of it too is just sort of what does it feel like viscerally to be taken on tours and to be shown, you know, to see, smell, taste, the space and think about like, wow, I really want to be part of this. You know, there's a certain kind of, I would say, investment tourism that is a really crucial component of um, spiderweb capitalism. Yeah, I, I have to say that what for me, one of the most fascinating parts of your book was your examination of, of the homosocial relationships that are being built and it, how it, all, all the things that that so many people in, in uh, the popular imagination associate with uh, frontier capitalism are, are at play there. And you describe how it's it's part of this process of establishing relationships that really are, are key to it, it, just, you know, creating a degree of, of, of trust and acceptance that is absolutely indispensable for these deals. Yeah. You know, I, um, so when I was doing the research for this book, I had primarily male undergraduate uh, research assistants who were with me. And I really think that this is one place where my subjectivity as an interviewer brought out something in the people that I studied. And if I pause for a minute and I encourage people to read the methodological appendix, 
One of the things I write about is that when you're doing interviews and when you're approaching research from a qualitative place, you're really, it's really about uh, subjectivity rather than objectivity. And what that means is that you have to take the interviewer's personhood, um, background, the way that they relate to people into consideration when you're thinking about the kinds of data that they're able to extract from these interviews. And I had done, prior to this book, I, I wrote, a, I published a book titled Dealing in Desire, Asian Ascendancy, Western Decline, and the Hidden Currency of, of Global Sex Work. And that book is about the sex industry in Vietnam and the way in which the sex industry facilitates foreign investment into this new market. And to do for that book, I also did a kind of deep dive ethnography where I, I embedded myself in four different hostess bars. And for 12 hours a day, I ate, drank, sang, danced, did all of the things hostess workers do in these bars. And so what was fascinating for my second book was when I sat down with people I would tell my research assistants, okay, we're going to have to warm them up. We're going to get this PR version of, you know, what they what they tell everyone. All of these people have PR training. And so we need to, you know, spend some time listening to that before we dig in. When I when I sat down with people, they had done their due diligence on me. And they had read, you know, my first book or the introduction to the first book or an, a news article. And when we would sit down, they would say, well, you know, you we know that you did sort of the dirty work to um, get the data for your first book, and we know you know how that this this world operates. So, what do you really want to know? And they what they talked about the second time around for the second book was even deeper than what I got from my first book, which was how important it is to engage in these male homosocial bonding experiences, not just to build trust with one another, but to create relationships of mutual hostage. And what I think is so fascinating about that is that we also saw this in the U.S. with um, the Jeffrey Epstein case and all of the ways in which Jeffrey Epstein um, established these relationships of mutual hostage at the highest level of governments, from Prince Andrew to President Trump to all of these reputable, quote unquote, reputable people like Bill Gates, who had relationships with Jeffrey Epstein um, in this sort of quasi legal, illegal, you know, playing in the space where women and sex and sex parties are a big part of these male homosocial bonding experiences. Um, and I think that that's one thing that was really fascinating. And, you know, what I would say is that all of these people that I studied are really complex individuals. And when I would ask them, you know, to reflect back on what it was like for them to engage in these kinds of practices, there were certainly some people who, you know, enjoyed the partying aspect of it, the, you know, the bonding experiences of it. But there were also people who found this to be very challenging and who, who saw this less as something that they enjoyed and more of something that's the ultimate sacrifice in order to build generational wealth for their families. Another thing that I would say is that, you know, when we think of elite individuals or ultra high net worth individuals, we often think of people who inherited wealth or who have generational wealth, which is certainly true. But there are also a number of people who grew up extremely poor, particularly those who have an immigrant background, who were refugees, who fled various places and who made significant amounts of wealth, um, you know, in hedge funds 
or uh, on Wall Street. And then we're now kind of reinvesting those funds in frontiers. And so they were really cognizant and reflexive of the ways in which their by their their activities were, you know, in, in the ways in which they were now on the other side um, of, you know, engaging in activities that in some ways exacerbate inequality rather than um, reduce inequality. And as much as they wanted to live in a world where there were more opportunities for a, mid- a growing middle class population, I think that they seemed to imagine that that was more feasible in new emerging and frontier markets than it was in developed economies like the US or Western Europe. And so, you know, I think that. Yeah. When you look at people, when you are looking at people in their sort of in this context, it's easy to kind of come at it with tropes and stereotypes of, you know, men engaging in all kinds of um, problematic activities, particularly for me as a woman, highly educated feminist. And yes, that's certainly part of the story, but I think it only captures a part of it. And it doesn't also capture their vulnerabilities, their sense of precariousness, their moral reflexivity that I think is also important to articulate and illustrate um, because that's that's another part of the story, too. And, and that's part of the story that you don't see very often in so much of the reporting. And, and for me, was the most interesting part of your book, which is you consider the moral side of it, but more importantly, you convey to us something of, of their ruminations about the moral side, about how it, and, and this is not just in terms of the, 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 you know, the, the homosocial activities, but also the, the question of the morality of, of bribes. Now, as you explained, this is, we're not talking about black market stuff. We're talking about the gray, but the gray is uh, oftentimes means that, that people are, uh, it, the, the, there's some crony capitalism, especially in a place like Myanmar. Sometimes they're not trying to engage in it. Sometimes they're trying to work around it. But at the same time, they are in a place where there is the, the very fact that laws exist elsewhere, which restrict that laws, which apply to a lot of the actors who are engaging in these activities, points to the fact that there is this awareness that while they're not doing anything that is necessarily you know grossly illegal, they are doing something that is is somewhat illegal, and, and, and that you 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 reflect upon the, the the moral dimensions of this in a way that you don't often see uh, addressed. And again, I think this is why interviews are so fascinating because I wasn't looking for this when I set out to do the project. The language that they use is how do you make sense of activity that's legal but morally reprehensible? And this is their language. And I thought, wow, that's so fascinating that they are articulating it in this way. And, you know, the other thing they will say is like, I don't want to play by these rules, but if this is the, if these are the rules or sort of norms that govern finance and financial activity or foreign investments abroad, I'm just, you know, a person caught, a cog caught up in a broader system. And I think that that moral reflexivity says a lot about, on the one hand, I talk about how agentic people are in making markets. And on the other hand, I also describe the ways in which they feel helpless to change the very structures that enable them to accumulate massive amounts of wealth, but also potentially lose a lot. I mean, the last chapter of the book is titled Feast and Famine, which is which is, again, the the language that comes from the people that I interviewed, where 
where they articulate what it's like to experience um, you know, the feeling of making a lot of money or losing a lot of money after uh, significant investments in this region. And what I think is ironic in all of this is that those people that experienced feast where they, you know, um, working for a long time, you know, exited an investment and suddenly had this real kind of cash injection into their personal bank accounts as a result of a successful exit were incredibly lonely and isolated. They didn't share this with their wives, with their most intimate partners. Um, and there's a gender story. There's a gender dynamic there too of just like, well, as long as my partner is, well, as long as I can maintain the standard of living that my family needs to have, they, they don't really need to know about the rest of this. But also they didn't want to talk to other bankers or other people because they, they developed a certain level of paranoia that people are going to, were going to go to them and try to raise money from them, right? Like suddenly when they've become somewhat of a big spider, there's a sort of paranoia that all these smaller spiders are going to come after them, right? Um, and it takes a little bit of time to process what it means to, to have this windfall of cash. And even just, I think, psychologically, what it means to look at your bank account and see those numbers. Um, but then on the flip side of that, I also describe experiences of famine where people have made investments and lost it. And I think some of the most memorable stories there are stories that have resonances of, um, I would say, sort of like the revenge of the South or, um, you know, the ways in which former you know, countries that were colonized or that, you know, it, uh, um, ex, you know, like I think of Vietnam as example, you know, uh, you know, have been gone through Chinese colonialism, French colonialism, U.S. intervention during the Vietnam War. A lot of this is like, yes, like let's let's lure your money into this country and then in a very sort of like guerrilla warfare kind of way, kick you out and we take all of it. And there's a certain kind of protectionism and national pride for this ability to engage in these kinds of micro um, tactics that um, exploit big spiders and their their money and their capital. And I think that those kinds of creative practices um, on the ground are super fascinating. And I think that really you can see these layers of history laid over uh, of the kind of revenge of the South, the rise of this you know economy. And everyone today would say, I mean, most financial investors today, most people in finance would say, you know, Vietnam is the new darling of Southeast Asia. There's the complicated geopolitical relationships between the U.S. and China have and, you know, and other developed economies are too expensive to go into that Vietnam is that darling. Everyone wants to go there. And prior to the coup in Myanmar under um, Aung San Suu Kyi, there was so much excitement that, you know, Myanmar was going to leapfrog Vietnam because of democracy and and this sort of new um, uh, democratic state that was putting in. Um, greater rules of law and, and transparency to encourage foreign investment from abroad. I mean, the time that I was there was this very dynamic time, and it continues to be, I think, in Vietnam, although it's it's peeled back a bit in Myanmar. Um, and 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 so people are, you know, experiencing, yeah, what they articulate as feast and famine in these markets. And sometimes they that's. That's part of the, the 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 sense of coming to terms with with 
being involved in this gray area that you describe. Yes, that's the that is the risk, and I think that is what makes them. That is the place where I think ultra high net worth and even high net worth individuals. I mean, I would say high net worth individuals more than ultra high net worth individuals feel a particular kind of economic precarity that you could go in and lose it all. And so when they do make out well, part of it is like, yeah, because they took big risks in these new frontiers, there is a, you know, um, huge risk in going into these markets versus uh, making investments in, you know, traditional index funds in the United States that are going to yield five to 6% return on investment. And here they're really kind of gunning for the 15, 25% return on investment, which is, um, you know, far greater than, than what we're seeing in advanced economies right now. Hmm. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? You know, I'm going to be very honest and humbly say I don't know where I'm going next. <laughs> this book really took a lot out of me. It took I, – I feel like I poured all of my sort of um, physical energy traveling around the world to interview all of these people and then creative energy to really put the pieces of the puzzle together and tell the story and at this point, I think inertia is sending me to do a project on cryptocurrencies and to think about the ways in which third world economies or less developed economies are adopting cryptocurrencies and the ways in which states are reacting to that. And I see cryptocurrencies from the from a place like Vietnam or Myanmar as a sort of revenge of less developed economies to the U.S. to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. Um, but I, I don't know if that's where I'm going next, if I'm very honest, because I think that I want to take a minute to just recalibrate and reflect on, you know, uh, what that new passion project is for the, that's going to consume the next eight to 10 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can definitely appreciate the, what you're describing because I, I reading your book, it really is in, in a fantastic book. And at the same time, I could appreciate just how much of, of you is in it, how much of your efforts in it. And I think it just made for such a fantastic uh, read as a consequence. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Kimberly, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.